0: Indeed, O God, we are a people who have come to recognize that indeed our all in all is to be found in Christ Jesus the Lord. His person, his work, they are what gives us the very identity of our souls. We are safe, there is no fear of death indeed, O God, but not because we have done so marvelously, not because we have lived so righteously, no, no. None of that is true. What is true is that our works are as filthy rags before your holy eyes. No claim of merit we have. What we have is a Savior. We, lay, we stake a claim to his finished work for sinners. Because that's what we are. And he is our consummate hope. Not just for that life, but for this one as well. Father, so many of us bear the scars of trying to find our meaning and purpose and and our identity in something other than Jesus Christ. We are living examples of the fruitlessness of doing such a thing. So now, Father, remind us afresh that all of life finds its direction, its meaning, its purpose in who Jesus Christ is, what he's done, and what he asks of his people. Our Father, we thank you for the kind providences of the past week. There have been surgeries performed that have gone, oh, so wonderfully well that that could have gone the other way and didn't. And we bless you for those providences that steered us around traps that had been set for us by the evil one himself, providences of which we are not even aware we thank you for them. We thank you that though our marriages could have ended up on a, on a very sad note, they haven't. That there is good between our wives and ourselves and our husbands and ourselves. We, we, we attribute that to your kind intervention in our homes. Oh God, thank you for the way that you blessed us financially. We are wealthy people. And our wealth has gotten in the way of the development of our souls in so many occasions. But now, here's our chance. Here's our chance to deny our flesh and, and make a statement about how we trust you with our financial future. So, Father, when we stick this check in a plate, understand that from us it is not a duty. It is not to impress the people who sit next to us. It is a statement on our behalf of faith that you first gave it, and we trust you to provide for every need. We pray, of course, in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Thank you. If you will, turn with me to um, Peter's first epistle. He's got two, as you know. We're going to read from the first one. We'll begin in chapter 1 at verse 3. You follow as I read, uh, beginning at verse 3. First Peter chapter 1, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope, The salvation of your souls. Now, if you'll skip to verse 13. Therefore, gird up the loins of your mind. Be sober and rest your hope fully upon the grace that is to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, not conforming yourselves to the former lusts, as in your ignorance, but as he who called you is holy. You also be holy in all your conduct, because it is written, Be holy, for I am holy. The grass withers, and the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. Most of you know that we're in the midst of a uh, little summertime series. It's not that long, a couple more weeks and we'll be finished Uh, concerning midlife archaeology. I said uh, several weeks ago that we're going to dig around in this thing called midlife. Um, Our culture is convinced that there is something called a crisis at this point in our lives. But we're going to dig around in this thing and find out if we can't make some sense out of it. And try to uh, respond to it with a a greater um, success. If we, Or maybe minimizing or even perhaps avoiding that thing that's supposed to be waiting for all of us called a crisis, a midlife crisis. What I've done in this series is gather up a, a number of, of issues, um, if you know what I mean, uh, uh, issues that seem to be uh, inevitable in this period of our life. Like last week, as you might remember, we looked at the issue of regrets. Uh, we 're going to look at another one this morning, and then two more, and then we 're all finished but what i 've what i 've sought to do is is uh, um, <laughs> really using my own life you know in, in all honesty guys um, i don 't know that i 've ever preached a sermon that is more uh, autobiographical than is this one not that, not that i 'm the subject i 'm not the subject, but uh, when it came to digging around i really didn 't need to bother you because I had enough uh, material in my own broken soul to, uh, to offer in this series. You know, um, as, I, as I stand here, you're all wondering, what happened to him? Did he fall down? Did he get hurt someplace? Oh, no, no, no. These marks on my face are just another evidence of my own midlife. Actually, I'm a little beyond it, according to sociology. You know, I go to the doctor and get things cut off me all the time. This is just one more getting... I mean, I didn't have to look at your lives. All I had to do was look at my own. So again, what I've sought to do is just come up with a number of issues that seem to frequent this period of our lives. And so what I want to do this morning is take a look at this passage uh, by the Apostle Peter. Take a look at his words and to and to put together um, what I'm calling a robust theology of suffering. which I'm hoping will help us make a little bit of sense out of some of the things that we experience at this period in our lives. Not to say, not to say that difficulty and trial and suffering doesn't occur in other periods of our lives. But it does seem to be more frequent, does it not? In this period known as as midlife, more things just seem to unravel. In this period of our lives than other periods. So what we're going to do is take a look at this passage and see what we can cook up in terms of a robust theology of suffering. You know, guys, as you ramble around in this text, um, you might not know it, but the first epistle of Peter um, is considered a, a, a treatise, Peter's treatise on suffering. It's all through this book. But as you ramble around in this in this uh, early portion of it, the thing that struck me first is that God is the author of it all. I'm not talking about the book. God is the author of it all. That is, whatever it is that you're experiencing, he is the author of it all. In, in this passage, actually in the book, but in this passage, God is center stage. He is the, he is the divine playwright. He is, he is behind this. He is directing this. He is in this. He is producing this. He is in the middle of this whole thing. This is not some kind of lady luck we're dealing with. This drama is all his. That's the first thing that struck me about this passage beginning in verses three and four is that God is all over it. Now, um, concerning that drama of which he is the author, um, my story is just a small part of a larger story. There is a big drama that is unfolding, and I've got a small part in it. Now, let me tell you what the storyline is. The storyline of this drama is that God is... um, God is working with a, a suffering people who live in a suffering world and He sends a suffering Savior to take them to a place where there's no more suffering. That's the drama. And my life is a is a is a small little portion of that larger drama. That he is the author of, he is the producer, the director. He's in it. He's playing it. He's 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 pulling all the strings. This story that is contained in this book is not about rose-colored glasses. It's not a, it's not escapism. It's not fairy tale. It's very real, and it it points towards a rescue. Now, guys. I, I, again, I'm trying to put together a robust theology of suffering that will allow us to make some sense of all the things that we face. And I want to start with that. Hopefully, that's a good place to start. Simply this the acknowledgement and the awareness that this, this whole drama of which my life is a small part, there is an author, there is a playwright, there is, there is somebody who has scripted this thing and, and, It's God. He's in it, behind it, producing it, directing it. The whole thing is playing out, is unfolding in my life in certain ways, some of which I do not like. But the author of this thing is that God that we sing about a lot here. Now, um, what that should do is, is something like this. One of the things that it should do is is assure me that there there are no that there are no oops in my life. God is not pacing the corridors of heaven, wringing his hands, wondering how did that happen um there 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 is not something over which he looks or at which he looks in my life and says. Oops. No. No. Which means, my brother and sister in Christ, it means this. That there is a redemptive purpose in all this stuff that we face. There is redem- not just purpose, but redemptive purpose. I, I don't know whether you've got an NIV Bible, but the NIV um, In verse 7 uses, I've got the New King James, but the NIV says, These have come, that is, these difficulties, these trials, these have come with intent, with purpose, with redemptive purpose. It, It wasn't... It wasn't something that just got out of hand. These things have come. They've come with intent. So the question before the house now is, okay, what is the intent? What is the purpose of all this? Well, guys, um, I, I want to suggest to you several images. But the first image that I want you to see is contained in the text. It's found in verse 5. And you'll notice that there is a mention of a precious metal, gold, uh, and it uh, that perishes, though it is tested by fire. That's the first image, guys. In answer to the question of what is this redemptive purpose the first thing that you must look at is the image that's contained in the text, and that is that there is something that is precious that is filled with uh, impurity. You know, guys, we, we all start this Christian life much like iron ore, or like gold, but like iron ore, and there's lots of impurity that is mixed in with the good stuff. So this God of ours turns up the heat. He heats the pot to get rid of some of that sludge and that dross that seems to collect to us. It is this God who's in charge of this whole unfolding drama that's got his hand on the knob turning the heat up. His redemptive love us. um, Again, the NIV uses the word refinement. If you you want a nice word that summarizes what I'm saying, that's it. Refinement. Like gold that's being purified by fire. Guys, that's that's part of the purpose. Uh, You want to know the purpose? You, you, You believe that there is? Well, there it is, guys. Put your finger on that. That is, there is a need for... To burn away some of the ugly stuff that collects to our souls that we brought into the kingdom with us, it's got to go. And so the heat gets turned up by the divine playwright. Here's another image, a second image that's not in the text, but in fact I didn't think of this, I, but I think it's a great image. It's a great image because I mean it's a great image to me. It is like that is uh, that suffering. Uh, comes into my life like a spiritual dentist. Now, that's the spiritual dentist. I didn't think of that, but I, I think it's a great image. Spiritual dentist. Guys, dentists laugh about being the most hated professionals there are, the most disliked professionals there are. You know, I, I, I do everything that I can possibly do to avoid having to visit a dentist. You know, um, C.S. Lewis tells a story about when he was a child, when he would get a toothache, he wouldn't tell his mother about the toothache. Because if he if he told his mother about the toothache, then she would give him an aspirin and she'd put the aspirin on the tooth and, and, and that would help the, the throbbing of the tooth. But the next day, she was going to make an appointment with the dentist. So to avoid that, he just didn't tell her. You know, I'm not, I don't want to go to that dentist. No, no, I don't want to. Go. So he just, until it got unbearable, then he had to go tell his mother. And she, she provided some immediate relief. But the long-term relief took place in a dentist chair. Now, you know what? Guess who it is that's holding that awful drill. <laughs> don't you hate that thing? I hate it outside my mouth, inside my mouth, hanging on to the little thing next to the chair. I hate it. You know, it's, it's like 40,000 RPMs a second or something. And I think, oh, they're about to put that thing in my mouth. My mouth is very important to me. <laughs> but I avoid that as much as I possibly can, even knowing that it's good for me. It would be a good thing if I went. But I don't want to go. Um, I know that that pain is not an end in itself. It's a means to a good end. I know that. But I still don't want to go. Well, you want to know the purpose, guys? Of this divine playwright? Well, think of it as sitting in the chair of the dentist. Here's a third image. I didn't come up with this one either. But um, the, the point of what God is up to is that the crisis is actually a rescue. A rescue from a bondage to something I didn't even know had a hold on me. Like career when did I become a workaholic when did work become so important to me that I became unapproachable and unavailable like you saw here or um, things how did I get to the place Where I had to have the expensive, the new. How did I get there? Or um, appearance. How did I become so consumed with my body and clothes? How is it possible for me to change so significantly and not even know it? How is it possible, guys, that so many of us get get lost in this maze of the unimportant and the insignificant? How does that happen? So what happens is, God sins. He sends a rescuing agent to deliver us from a bondage that we didn't even know that we were in. And that rescuing agent is suffering. The only thing that will separate us from our bondage is suffering. You know, as I sat there and I, I watched that skit, which I thought was so marvelously done, I wondered, what would I feel like if my wife said to me, I want out? Do you not think that that would jar me to the base of my being? Do you not think that perhaps for one time I'd start, I'd, I'd, I'd sit back and say, oh my God, what has happened to me? That's 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 the rescue at work. My tiny story in the midst of this grand and glorious divine drama being played out and what is God doing? Well, first of all, he's refining, he's purifying, and then he's he's drilling out the decay and then he's rescuing me. You want to know the purpose there it is. 3 images. One of which ought to register, I hope. Now, guys, what is my part in this play? That is, the the play that God wrote. Here's what you have and what I read to you this morning. What you have is Peter says something like this. If this is what is going on, then this is what you do in response to what's going on. Uh That is, how do I live within the plot? Peter says, okay, here's the plot. Verses 3 through 9. Now, in response to my recognition that this is what is happening, what do I do? How do I respond? And that's contained for you in verses 13 through 16. If you'll notice, verse 13 begins with the word, therefore. If you're any kind of student of the Bible, you know that that's a key word in interpreting the Bible The word therefore, you always ask, what's the therefore, therefore? Okay, the therefore is therefore this, guys. It is telling you what is to be my response to the recognition that this is going on. Okay, God has designed this marvelous story that is unfolding in my life to refine, to rescue, and to Dig out decay. Okay, how am I to respond to that stuff? You know, because I, I, very honestly, I don't care for that drill. I don't want the drill. I don't want the chair. I don't want the office. I don't want the appointment. I don't want any of it. How am I supposed to respond to that? There are five things within this text that I want you to see, guys, and then we're finished. Real quick. First of all, in verse 13, he starts off by saying this. Therefore, gird up the loins of your mind. All right, guys, understand that my, the first um, point of my response is going to have something to do with my mind. I am being asked, I am being called to return to what I already know to be true and work outward. I am being called, folks, to deduce. That is constantly the apostolic method, guys. That is, the truth is explained, and then in response to the truth, I am called to deduce from the truth my responses. Not the other way around. Guys... In light of all that I hold dear, in light of all that I believe to be true as a Christian, draw conclusions, make applications. Gang, much of the struggle that we experience is because we don't think from the Bible outward what we do is we we arrive at truth based on our experience instead of allowing the truth to interpret our experience i mean do you get that what we do is we experience something and as a result of our experience we come to a conclusion about what's true that's backwards what you do is experience something and interpret it through things that you know to be true Guys, just stay right where you are. Let me just read you three verses. This is in the book prior to Peter. James says, My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience, but let patience have its perfect work, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. There's the truth. Now work outward. Gird up the loins of your mind. You you engage the truth and draw conclusions based on it. Not the other way around, guys. In response to this stuff that God is sending, here's the first thing go back to the truths that you hold dear and that you know are true. And let those things interpret your experience. Don't let experience give you your truth. That's number one. Number two, the text says be sober. That's an interesting Greek word. It's the word napho, which has a couple of um, meanings. A napho can refer to a, a state of not being intoxicated. He's sober. But it's got another meaning, and we do the same thing with the word in English we say he's sober minded. It can can refer to a state of not being intoxicated, but it also has to do with with a, a vigilance, a man who is circumspect. Now, what Peter is calling you to in verse 13 is, don't live under the influence. The influence of what? He doesn't have alcohol in mind here, guys. Don't live under the influence of Runaway emotions, that tidal wave of emotions that is inevitable with suffering, must be bridled. Don't go where it takes you so that you can get a bit of immediate relief or or, uh, uh, some kind of temporary fix. Don't let them take you there. It only complicates things, guys. You know, people who are under the influence, they do stupid things. Don't they? If they're under the influence of scotch, they do some crazy things. But if they are under the influence of runaway emotions, they do stupid things there. You know, guys, we emotional types, we really struggle with this stuff. Did y'all see the movie, movie, the Titanic? Did you see that? I'm still upset about that movie. I mean, Rose told Jack that she would never let go. <laughs> and she let go. I'm still mad at Rose for having let go of Jack. I mean, I'm, we emotional types are really get ourselves in, but you computer geeks and, and accountants, you might not have as much trouble but it's a, it's a, it's a matter of we're we're all in danger of being swamped by emotions just a matter of degree folks don't go where they take you be sober vigilant circumspect not under the influence you, you construct your life based on what those things are doing with you and you're gonna be in trouble. And of course, as you know, in the times of difficulty, we got this, this tidal wave of emotions, don't we? That's number two. Number three. Look at the text in verse 13. Be sober and rest your hope fully upon the grace that is to be Brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. The third thing is, guys, is that we are to reconstruct a proper hope, a proper hope in grace. Gang, midlife is a time of disillusionment, it's a time of, of, of dashed dreams. My career. Yeah, it just didn't just didn't make it like I wanted it to. My family. Uh oh, I'm disillusionment there. You know, that white picket fence thing that I wanted, it didn't didn't didn't, just didn't didn't work out. Travel, romantic, adventurous travel. Well, I've made it as far as destined. It just didn't work out. So it's time to have a hope reassessment really is what you saw going on in that skit, guys. It's time to reassess and and place your hope in the only thing that will not disappoint you. Jesus Christ. Guys, pain is the stuff that helps us call away the insignificant. Because we are... We are tunned with it. And the more money we got, the more insignificant stuff we got. And so the Father sends. Sends. To help us have a period of hope reassessment where we fix our hope on Jesus, which is the only one. Who will not disappoint us? We got two more and I gotta hurry. Number four, in verse fourteen. As obedient children, not conforming yourselves to the former lusts as in your ignorance. The fourth part of my response to this truth that I'm faced with is beware of the former lusts, guys, as you know, in your ignorance, the text says. You remember those? You know, those times when I said, well, I deserve a little bit of happiness. Or, um, um, you know, my marriage is a bit dull. And you know God wants me to be happy. I need another woman. Younger. Or things... We go out and buy a new toy in the hopes that it will lift our spirits. Guys, it's those former temptations which we succumb to in our ignorance, according to verse 14. It's those things that that tend to creep in when I'm down, don't they? And what disastrous decisions are made sometimes in the midst of my crisis. Guys, obedience in one sense is even more urgent in time of suffering than in other times. Because I'm so vulnerable. I'm so weakened. Don't go out and buy something new. It just makes it more complicated. Have you ever heard of debt? You don't need another man or woman. No. Remember, be obedient, conforming yourselves or avoiding your former lusts. Not conforming to those former lusts, as in your ignorance. And then finally, the fifth part of my response to this drama that's unfolding in my life. We're told in verse 15 and 16, but as He who called you is holy, you also be holy in your con- in all your conduct, because it is written, Be holy, for I am holy. So the call is for God's people to pursue holiness in the midst of their suffering. Doing the right thing long enough, even when the pain is out the roof. But, Dr. Young, that's exactly what I have been doing, and and look what it's gotten me, uh, breast cancer. My dear sister in Christ, obedience did not produce your breast cancer. Have you forgotten where you live? This is a broken world. We're all broken in it. The entrance of sin in Genesis chapter 3 brought widespread carnage. A carnage which will one day be mopped up. It'll be reversed. But until then, God, our divine playwright, has scripted a drama that has a glorious ending. Receiving the end of your faith, the salvation of your souls. He says in verse 6, but if for a little while, um, if need be, Oh, how often the need exists in us, doesn't it? For a little while, if need be. Well, I'm afraid the need exists in, in somebody who's got a lot of decay in his teeth. And so he uses, he uses things that are painful to dig out the decay that's in my spiritual teeth. Because everything that God does in me, everything that God does for me, is designed to produce in me holiness. That's the purpose. And that's the response. My dear friend, the issue is not whether you will suffer. The issue is what you will do when you suffer. Nobody gets a pain-free life. Nobody gets a pain-free marriage. Nobody gets a pass when it comes to suffering. The pain is unavoidable. Misery is optional. Based on how you follow the remedy for facing these things that the Heavenly Father sends with divine intent to rescue people who have grown into bondage over things they didn't even know they were bondage to. Thank you, Lord. Our Father, I do pray that you will um, remind your people that this pain that this present pain that we now experience is, is a part of the drama. It's a part of the overall redemptive scheme to bring about a conformity to Christ in, um, in your people. So, Father, as little as we like that dental chair, we pray that you will grant us a fresh supply of grace to endure the terrible pain of the Of that awful drill that has a good purpose, a good intent to rescue us and to make us more like Jesus. We pray, of course, in his name for his sake.